Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Women's Cancer Center, delivering preventive, diagnostic, surgical, medical, and chemotherapy services to women with gynecologic cancer or other conditions related to the reproductive systems. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org WCC. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In 1996, if you owned a home or business in Pennsylvania, the utility that supplied your electricity was based on where the home or business was located. The utilities pretty much had a monopoly, and customers relied on the rates set by the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission and how much energy they used to determine how much they paid for electricity. But then came the Electricity Generation Customer Choice and Generations Act of 1996. It was designed to open the electricity markets and allow customers to choose the company that would supply their power. 20 years later, prices are lower on average, power plants are more efficient, and producing less pollutants and electric choice the shorthand name for the act, has been hailed as a success. That's according to a new report from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy. The study's co-authors are with us today. Joining us is John Hanger. He is uh, one of the architects of Electric Choice, a former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, member of the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission, and was a Democratic candidate for Governor Secretary Hanger. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Also joining us is Christina Simeon, who is the Director of Policy and External Affairs at the Climate Center. Ms. Simeon, welcome to the program. Scott. Uh, there you are. I had to. I had to on the wrong telephone line. You know, as much technology as we have, human error is still the biggest problem. <laughs> Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment uh, about electric choice, you know, it's always been my experience that when we talk about this issue, there are a lot of questions. One eight hundred seven two nine seven five three two, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Now, I, I have to say to the two of you, reading over the report, there. There are a lot of numbers to digest and comparisons to make when looking back over the last 20 years. But the bottom line is, what has the impact been in Pennsylvania since electric choice came to be in the state? And John Hanger, I'll start with you. Simply put, uh, power is uh, cheaper on average, and it's way cleaner no matter where you are in the Commonwealth. Uh, so those two goals of uh, the Competition Act have been achieved, achieved, cheaper and cleaner. The power is still reliable. In fact, uh, I would say more reliable because the power plants run better today. They break down less than they did uh, 20 years ago. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the, in the old days, 20 years ago, power plants were typically offline maybe uh, six weeks a, a year, broken down, not not out for on a planned basis, but just broken down like a car on the side of the road with a hood up. Uh, now that, that uh, number is cut to about three weeks a year, they're, they're broken down. But why? I mean, that, does that have anything to do with this act? Uh, absolutely. Uh, in the, in uh, 20 years ago when the monopoly was in place, uh, the owners of Generation, which were our local uh, electric utilities, uh, got paid uh, by ratepayers uh, whether or not their power plants run. Uh, that was basically the rule. There was one big exception. 
when Three Mile Island melted down, the Public Utility Commission uh, did, uh, in fact, take uh, Three Mile Island out of the rate base of Metropolitan Edison or GPU at the time. Uh, but basically, if a power plant uh, broke down for a week or month or so, ratepayers kept paying. So there was much less incentive to make sure your plant ran well when you got paid, whether it ran well or not. Today, uh, in the competitive market, owners of generation only get paid if they produce electricity. And, of course, I think that's the way it should be. Christina mm-hmm. Simeon, uh, your thoughts on uh, what we've seen over the last 20 years. You co-authored the, this study, and there's a lot there. But uh, what have been the major impacts been? Well, I I agree with what John has said. I mean, I think one of the big things to see from the report is that the impact of low natural gas prices, uh, low natural gas commodity prices, and how they are affecting power prices, bringing power prices down to the benefit of electricity consumers, financially harming some electricity generators. Um, But one of the functions of the competitive electricity markets is it's able to very quickly pass along those lower commodity costs and um, the you know the quote one of the quote unquote uh, successes of competition has really been um, that ability to bring down costs now the situation could have been very different if uh, natural gas prices would have gone up um, but again, looking back, those are the results that we've seen. Well, you know, one of the things that did strike me about the report is natural gas. Natural gas seems to have been a game changer. Would you agree with that? And, John, I'll have your to uh, your take on this in just a second. But, Christina, would you agree with that? Absolutely. And it's important for listeners to understand why. Um, when power plants used to be paid rates that were approved by state regulators, those generators were paid based on their average costs. In a market-based system, generators are paid based on the system marginal costs or the cost of the last and most expensive generator needed to meet electricity demand at a given point. In this area, typically natural gas generation provides that marginal uh, system resource. So as we've seen natural gas prices go down because of uh, shale gas, Um, the pot of money available to compensate generators in the market has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. Again, that has benefited electricity consumers but hurt some generators. Mm -hmm. So, Secretary Hanger, we were talking about this before we went on the air, uh, and I mentioned to you that uh, it it really comes out in the report that natural gas did have a big impact on this, but you said that, because I want to go back to 20 years when this first came to be, that most of the power in Pennsylvania was being generated by coal generating plants or nuclear. Um, But you know, going back, and we're getting away from coal generating plants. But you said that uh, natural gas, the price of natural gas, and those savings passed on to consumers wouldn't have happened without this law. Why? Right. Uh, so, 20 years ago, uh, the uh, fuel that a plant uh, utility used to make electricity was just recovered dollar for dollar. And again, they had no incentive actually to use either cheaper fuel or to use fuel efficiently. They could have a a power plant that guzzled coal, and they would get a recovery for every dollar spent uh, on coal. 
Now, it was also locked into a rate. Uh, once that fuel price and that capital cost of the power plant was put into a rate, it was locked in, and you were going to pay th for that if you lived in the area literally for 40 years. The power plant would be depreciated over a 40-year period. Now, what uh, competition has done is got, get, gotten rid of the automatic recovery of a fuel cost. You tell the owners of power plants no longer automatically recover the cost of the fuel. And when uh, the power prices go down, as Christina has described, for whatever reason, including because the natural gas prices have gone down, those power prices f uh, flow right through to the customer uh, uh, very, very quickly. If if we had not broken up the monopoly, you would still be paying average prices or the, uh, the fixed costs of building the power plant 20 years ago. You wouldn't be paying a competitive market price. You'd be paying an, what I will call an old legacy price. So let's go back 20 years, and we are going to talk more about some specifics, but let's go back 20 years. What prompted this, and what were the Act's goals? Sure. So 20 years ago, uh, I was uh, a, uh, a commissioner of the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission, and I had spent uh, my early career representing consumers uh, of utilities. And at least in uh, the electric sector, uh, rates across the Commonwealth on average were above the national average, about 15%. Uh, we had two major uh, areas of the Commonwealth, the Allegheny County, Pittsburgh area, as well as the Philadelphia area and the suburbs of Philadelphia, where residential rates were amongst the top 10 in the country. They Pico, were, I thought at one time Pico had like the highest in the country. Very close to the yeah. highest. I don't think they ever quite got to the no, highest, but they came. It's not something you want. Yeah. Right. They, and it was because, uh, frankly, they spent billions and billions of dollars on building nuclear power plants, and then three commissioners in a room in a public session, there was nothing secret about it, voted to al allow them to recover those costs uh, in, in monopoly rates. Mm -hmm. And rates went through the roof. Uh, so we were dealing with very high rates, um, and we were dealing with, frankly, power plants that ran didn't run so well, like the Three Mile Island breakdown, meltdown. Uh, we were dealing with power plants that polluted a lot. Uh, you're right. Uh, 20 years ago, we got 55% of our power from coal-fired power plants, and many of them had poor pollution control on them. Today, we get uh, about 35% of our power in Pennsylvania from coal-fired power plants, and most of them have good pollution control on them. At least for mercury, soot, and, and others, you, they have no controls on carbon dioxide, and it's important to note that, that a coal-fired power plant in Pennsylvania has zero pollution control for carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. So as far as those, those goals go, Christina, do you think that uh, 20 years later we've met those goals? Yes, I, I think that, as John mentioned before, I mean, we've seen cleaner power. We've seen uh, Pennsylvania's retail electricity prices that were 15% higher than the national average move down to actually below the national average. Um, we've seen a significant amount of, we've seen the markets be able to attract new investment into cleaner, more efficient generation and also send price signals um, that older, less efficient generation that is less economically competitive, um, sent signals for those units to retire. Um, I, I think a lot of those goals have been met, as well as uh, what John mentioned, the efficiency or the operational efficiency of these units. Uh, for example, um, the probability that a generator would have uh, been unavailable when it's needed 
um, was about 11% in 1996. By 2015, it was about 6.9%. Oh, wow. So, 11%. Wow. Yeah. So, Christina, you know, when, when we're talking about this, and I'm going through the report, I have to admit, as I said in my, you know, as, as stated as part of my first question, there are a lot of numbers. There are a lot of percentages. Um, but it isn't as simple as competition between suppliers, though, as you both just described, how power is generated has been a significant factor. Uh, but let's talk about the, the bottom line for many customers out there. The bottom line is, okay, I just want reliable, I want safe, I want clean, and I want to pay less. Right. Christine, have all those things happened? Um, well, I think, you know, for certain classes, the commercial and the industrial class, for example, um, you know, we've talked so far, mostly we've focused on wholesale power uh, production and the efficiencies that have been achieved through generators competing amongst each other to provide power. The other thing that the Competition Act did was give customers on the retail side the choice of providers. And for commercial and industrial customers that chose to competitively shop, meaning leave their, leave their utility uh, generation supply or their electricity supply from their local utility and go out into the market and shop for competitive supply, those customers tended to um, achieve savings, pay less by contracting with a competitive supplier. On the, for the residential customers, those results, that cost savings we did not observe. Um, in general, we found that there was a slight um, savings for residential customers by staying with their default utility. However, I should say that the, there was many limitations of the data. Uh, for example, because rate caps weren't, did not come off statewide until after 2010, there was only really four good years of data, even though it's been 20 years since the act has right. passed. In addition, when we talk about those incremental uh, increases in price between, for the residential sector between the default utility supply and the competitive supplier products, it doesn't really take into account uh, the differences in the products that a competitive supplier um, can offer a customer. And this is, this is another part of the, the goals of competition is to offer customers choice, to offer them new innovative products. For example, um, a customer can choose to supply um, either home or business with, uh, or I should say their home, uh, with 100% renewable energy right. or may want to have some kind of, you know, automated thermostat or some new technology or product that a competitive supplier will, will offer that a, def, that a default utility may not offer. Hey, Christina, offer. can I interrupt for just one moment? Because mm -hmm, uh, sure. along the way, there are going to be some terms that I want to define so that everyone knows exactly what we're talking about. Default, default supplier. I think most people by this point probably know what we're talking about. For those who didn't make any moves, didn't shop, what is a default uh, supplier? So uh, a default supply is basically if you choose not to shop, you'll continue to get electricity supply from your local utility. Maybe that utility is Pico or PPL or Duquesne, for example. Um, if you choose to 
shop for electricity, going to papowerswitch.com and looking at the different competitive suppliers in your area, and you contract with a competitive supplier, you will get electricity supply from that competitive supplier, but you will continue to get electricity delivery service from your local utility. Scott, I think something that's very important to understand is that that default supply from the local utility is a competitive power product. Nobody in Pennsylvania is is getting a rate-based monopoly old-style product anymore. Under the law, those uh, rates were abolished, and everybody was going to get a competitive price, whether they shopped or not. So when this act was passed, the legislators wanted, if you didn't choose to go actively shop, you would still get a competitive market price, uh, and it was called default. So that that price that the utility is passing along is a competitive power price, and it's a it is an attractive product. There's no doubt about it. it it's a it's a product that is very competitive in the market, uh, and uh, it is also the case that both those who who have had default service or default pricing as well as competitive power pricing through shopping, by and large. Uh, depending on exactly where they they live, but by and large they've been big big winners, and we have details on this in in the in the report. And the difference uh, between the default price and the average of all of the ESCO prices or the competitive power prices is is uh, we looked at four years, and in three of the four years there was virtually no difference. Um, in one year, literally no difference, and two very modest difference. In one year, 2014, which happened to be the polar vortex year, mm. there there was it looks like about a one cent per kilowatt hour difference. So I don't want to overstate the the differences, bet- even on average per, uh, pricing basis, between not shopping and and taking default service. By the way, I want to tell our callers who are on hold right now. Uh, Please, please be patient, but I'll be with you in just a few minutes. But uh, you just said something, John, that I, I wanted to follow up on. Um, default, did those default utilities have incentive to compete with the suppliers that were coming into the state? And, and I think back to, we may have even had this conversation during a conversation on the air, but I remember PPL. Uh, said t- t- to me one time that uh, we don't care if uh, they supl- they choose another supplier. We're still going to be delivering it, but we don't care. In fact, we would encourage people to shop around. Right. I think each utility has had a different uh, attitude to whether or not they want uh, their their customers to switch. PPNL has taken the position, and I think it's laudable that they've done so, that uh, sh- uh, shopping and switching is good for the state and that they are at least commercially okay with it. Uh, the, the rules in their minds are fair and that their their interests are protected even if customers uh, shop and switch. So they have actively encouraged customers to switch. I think it's been a little different in some other cases, but but uh, but nonetheless, uh, one of the one of the advantages that customers customers have is if they do nothing, they do well. And Sonny Popowski, who was the consumer advocate back at the time this uh, statute was passed, wanted to make sure that residential customers who did nothing, uh, in other words, just uh, stayed put, would in fact do well. And that, that is exactly what's happened with the default price. I should quickly also say competitors, the, the companies that are offering competitive power products, 
I would tell you, Scott, that the default price is unfair to them. They, they view it as a form of unfair competition. Uh, and the reason is that uh, the, that, that the utility uh, and the default product starts with 100% of the customers. They, they have no marketing costs and they have no transaction costs, uh, whereas a, a competitor has to come into a market, create a sales force, create all the infrastructure, and uh, has considerable transaction costs to obtain a customer. It's typically the case, at least with a residential customer, that a, a, a company must keep that residential customer for at least a year just to break even. Now, the economics are different with commercial and industrial customers. And you see, in the case of industrial and commercial customers, which we should remember is about uh, close to 70% of all the electricity sold in the state, uh, those customers have shopped at a very high rate. And the data that we have here shows that the... the that by shopping, they're actually saving more money than staying put with a default price. All right. I, I got a break. I got to get to. But since you brought this up, I have to ask this question. You, you know, the, I think that it has been a big success for those commercial and industrial customers saving money. But yet only 35 percent of residential customers have shopped and switched. Why only a third. Because the default price is attractive. <laughs> I mean, the, the default product is attractive. Right or wrong, it's attractive. It's a strong competitor in the marketplace. And the second thing is inertia. I mean, f for many people, uh, the electric bill is out of sight and out of mind. You know, uh, they have better things to do with their time, more things to worry about. Uh, it's been a very uh, stable bill, and they can sort of just pay it every month, and they don't uh, see the value in going to PAPowerSwitch.com. Uh, uh, I, I encourage people to do that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a shopping customer, and I've bought 100% renewables. I've bought 100% wind power, uh, wind power manufactured in Pennsylvania. So I've got a product that's customized to my own values, and I'm thrilled to get that. You're listening to Smart Talk. Christine, I'll be with you in just one moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about 20 years of electric choice in Pennsylvania and a report that was just released uh, talking about those 20 years and the results of electric choice in Pennsylvania. Our guest today, John Hanger, he was one of the architects of electric choice, former secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, member of the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission, and was a Democratic candidate for governor. Also, Christina Simeon is the director of policy and external affairs at the Kleinman Center. We welcome your questions and comments. We'll get to the phone in just a moment at 1-800-729-7532, or you can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Christine, I interrupted you just before we went to the break. What did you want to say? Oh, no, I just wanted to, again, address the the reason why uh, the residential shopping prices may be so low. And I just want to talk a little bit about the potential for savings. So one, uh, industrial and commercial customers are buying electricity in think about it almost like they're buying it in bulk. They're buying a larger amount of electricity. And just like somebody can go to Costco and buy in bulk, they can typically get a savings. That's not the case with residential customers. The other important thing that the study looked at is the cost of delivery service. Delivery service was not impacted by the Competition Act. Delivery service is still regulated by state regulators, the Public Utility Commission. And the potential for savings in the residential sector may be less because the cost of delivery service is about 50% of the bill. So, in, and that's not the case in the commercial industrial sectors where it's less than 20%. 
on average, we saw that delivery costs have, for the residential sector, gone up over time, increasing above the rate of inflation, mm. whereas for the commercial and industrial sectors, delivery costs have gone down on a nominal basis, let alone keeping up with inflation. And I think that was an in, a very interesting part of the study. Okay. Result. We got a lot of phone calls, so let's go to the phone. Mike is in Harrisburg. Mike, you're on the air. Hello, Mike. All right, one of the things that Mike said, uh, he said he didn't believe that uh, this was a success for the consumer, said that he had to change energy provider every six months because of rising rates to keep a reasonable rate. John? Well, one of the opportunities is actually to get a long-term contract. Uh, 20 years ago, you couldn't do that, and actually rates uh, changed uh, pretty much every three months. Uh, customers may not have realized it, but that, that was happening because of the fuel adjustment clause uh, those uh, power prices changed with the cost of fuel. Uh, today, if you go to PAPowerSwitch.com, you can easily get a one-year fixed-price contract. Uh, you can also get uh, two-year uh, fixed-price power contracts, and, and I think there are, at least in some parts of the Commonwealth, three-year fixed-price power uh, uh, contracts. Power prices are low right now. I think a, a, a multi-year, uh, longer-term contract is, a, is, a, is an option that every consumer should look at right now because you could be locking in at a low point in the market for two or three years. That, if you look back, that actually was one of the, the biggest, uh, uh, biggest complaints was those adjustable rates. And you mentioned the polar vortex. A couple years ago, we had some people who were shocked when they got uh, electric bills that were four or five, now we're talking residential customers, four or five, six hundred dollars. What happened here? And now the legislature has made some moves to try to, uh, you know, encourage those fixed rates and that and that kind of thing you talked about. Right. So uh, one of the one of the uh, uh, reasons that some customers don't shop is they don't want to take the time to educate themselves. Uh, and if you do shop, you better educate yourself. Uh, that's very important. And the PAPowerSwitch.com has a whole whole education section, with, and I encourage people to read that before they make a choice. Uh, one of the choices that were presented uh, prior to the polar vortex was a variable rate, where right. the rate, uh, if you picked this product, it was could, could change every month or it could change every three months. It could change uh, very frequently. Now, you pick that product. Uh, now, there are other products that are f locked in fixed price for a year, two years, or even more. Uh, my mother, for example, is buying 50% renewable, but she wants a longer-term contract. Uh, she is locked in that 50% renewable price for a couple years. So you do need to educate yourself, and, and you do need to put some time and effort into understanding what you're buying. A, a variable rate power contract is kind of like a variable rate mortgage. Yeah. It's great when it's low. Uh, but it can go up, and you need to understand that. You didn't try to talk your mom out of that? Uh, I, I talked my mom into renewables, that she was an easy sell, uh, <laughs> and then she told me I want a longer-term contract. <laughs> All right, let's go to Joe in Denver. Jo Joe, you're on the air. Hello, Joe. All right, these are some of the earlier callers, and I guess they couldn't stay on the line, but let's go to Elizabeth in Carlisle. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Great Julie. show. Thank you. Um, yes, I, I want to say a couple of things. Educating yourself is really important, and your guest uh, stresses that. We have a unique situation that probably is for the minority of your listeners. We have a solar power on our roof, and uh, 
we shopped for power suppliers because the way our system works, the electricity we make, we sell to the grid, and the electricity we need, we buy from the grid. And our meter figures out the difference. And mm. when we make more than we use, we get a check periodically from the company. But we must stay with our default company because when we had another company, um, the difference between what we use and what we make we could not get credit for that. So we came back to PP&L, and uh, like I said, we get a small check periodically for that. But this is something that was not made clear to us when we install the, the solar system or when we switched the company. Thank you very much for your call. John, what about that? Well, she's right. Uh, She's also clearly well-informed, and what she's talking about, to use a little jargon, is net metering. Uh, where you sort of net out how much she's producing with her solar panels versus how much she's taking from the grid. And if it's uh, if she's producing more than she's taking, she gets a, a check. She's also pointing out that at, at least for some period of time in some parts of the Commonwealth, you couldn't be a net metering customer and also shop for electricity. That is something that is being worked on now. Uh, and I know uh, the Public Utility Commission, as well as uh, some utilities, and as well as the competitive suppliers, would like to enable more customers to actually be able to to use solar or and net meter and and also shop. But that's a let's call that a a a a, a, a matter or a set of facts that are are fluid and are being worked on. And there's also some uh, utility some. Uh competitive suppliers in different utility areas that do offer net metering, it may not be at the same level of compensation that the utility is, and there are going to be important details to understand if there are differences, but there are, for example, in PPL at least four competitive offers that do uh, provide net metering benefits. Mm -hmm. Um, PICO, again, there's four. There's uh, one in West, West Penn Power that's as of the time of our study. So it does look like even though the generation supply, the competitive generation suppliers are not required to offer net metering, they are finding that maybe there is demand by customers and that this is something that they are trying to, um, part of the market they're trying to serve. We have an email that says, uh, I shopped for a supplier the first year and it did not feel any different in cost or supply. There were horror stories about people being trapped in high-rate suppliers, and so when the next year rolled around, I just went back to the default to the default supplier. It takes some effort to shop for a supplier, and I hate the feeling that I may not have chosen the best deal, like picking the wrong line in the grocery store. By not shopping, I don't have the pressure or the extra work. I'm still on the default supplier. Jim. Well, that's a, that's a perfectly legitimate choice. Uh, he, he, the many least residential customers are exercising that choice. It, uh, he, he or she who is a default customer is in, is getting a competitive power price. Uh, I I would still encourage the customer to go to PAPowerSwitch.com and look through the the offers because right now he could lock in a low price for uh, even two years. And the market is right now at a low point. I think most people would agree with that. So if you could lock in a power price for two years today, you'll probably be pretty pleased with that over that two-year period. Um, I, I, so I would encourage the customer to go to PAPowerSwitch.com and at least look at the longer-term contracts, the two-year contracts. 
By the way, we do have a link to PAPowerSwitch.com on our website, WITF.org. So uh, as uh, Secretary Hanger had said earlier, uh, the website itself, uh, there is a lot of information there, and it's pretty self-explanatory. But, uh, you know, if you just conveniently want to go to it today, go to our website, WITF.org, click on the Smart Talk section, and you'll see the story for today. Let's go to Geniana County. Is it Royce? Hello, Royce. All right. I guess uh, uh, Royce isn't there. Uh, Gary is in Juniata County. We have a lot of Juniata County customers today. Gary, you're on the air. I have two two quick ones. One is uh, memory lane. Remember when dinosaurs ruled the earth? And anyway, that's how far back I go with this. Uh, PPNL is fine. You know, as far as most of the utilities, Pico built a nuclear power plant in Limerick, Pennsylvania, and they started this project back in the '60s. So they were going to dam up the Perkiomen Creek and get water and whatever. Well, they bought out a bunch of farms. They did a bunch of things. They never did build the dam. All of a sudden, they go a billion dollars over cost for Limerick and realize they don't have enough water to get the Unit 2 reactor online because of not having this dam and not being able to get enough water out of the Schuylkill. So I don't know if you remember Abby Hoffman and some of the great protesters of the 60s, but they got on the deal and they had to go 40 miles, Scott, from Limerick to the Delaware River to get water to be able to turn on the Unit 2 reactor. And all that cost was you know, pushed through electric rates, the billion-dollar cost overrun, the 40 million, or the, sorry, the 40-mile pipeline, and you know, it just, it just goes to what Secretary Hanger said that, you know, a lot of these costs were just okay. Well, you know, so you want a billion dollars over cost, we'll just throw that into the rates and and absorb it. And a real quick one about the solar. I have some commercial customers. I do energy audits for Penn State for farms. Most of the farms in PPNL's territory are listed as residential rate. When they put a solar system up, I had a gentleman put 800 solar panels up, probably cost of, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000, and all of a sudden he was charged a commercial rate, and the difference is they have something called a demand charge, and he will not be able to get rid of that demand charge. So I just wanted to let people know that, you know, there's a lot of differences and things they really need to shop when they get a solar system, whatever. They need to know how that's going to affect whether they stay at a residential rate or whether they're then charged a commercial rate. Thanks a lot. Thank you for your call. There's a lot there, Secretary Hanger, but let's start with what he had said. This is something you touched on earlier about PICO. One of the reasons they had higher rates is because of that Limerick nuclear plant, um, that, you know, the money that they were taking from customers to build that plant. But let's get to some of the other things that Gary brought up there. Um, the difference between the, there is a rate difference between commercial and uh, industrial and residential. Yes, the per, the cent per kilowatt hour charge is different, and there are other features of the bill, the so-called demand charges. I don't want to get too far in the weeds. No, uh, no, that are also different. But the point that he made about these farms that now granted these are businesses but they went from a residential rate to an industrial rate well they i think he said they went to re, from resi, they were classified before they had the solar system as residential and then right. after they had the commercial uh, the solar system they were moved to a commercial rate Look, uh, one of the things that I think is very important to understand about electricity competition in Pennsylvania is that we didn't quote unquote deregulate there are still oversight here and rules that uh, can be 
that actually have to be understood and followed. But there's also regulators who can, or like umpires. And if you feel like you're being unfairly treated, you, you can uh, file a complaint. You can go to the Public Utility Commission. Uh, you can even get, have a full-blown case uh, litigated there. That's expensive, admittedly. But uh, there are uh, people who have the job of uh, playing the role of umpire and calling uh, ball, balls and strikes uh, in the competitive marketplace. You know, it's interesting, though, that you said that this was not deregulation because almost every story in the media that I, I read about this, it talks about 20 years ago that this came at the height of deregulation across the country in many different industries and different areas. But you're saying this was not deregulation? Uh, absolutely was not deregulation. It was bringing competition to the generation monopoly. It was breaking up the, the generation monopoly, allowing any uh, company to build a power plant uh, on their dollar, not on the ratepayer dollar, allow any family to put up a solar panel on, the, on their dollar, not on the ratepayer dollar. Uh, moving the risks for generation from the ratepayer, the captured ratepayer, who was often unfairly treated, in my view, uh, to the to investors. Uh, investors can choose to invest or not in power plants, and they've been investing in power plants in Pennsylvania, from the small solar panels that we've heard about to very large, uh, typically right now, natural gas power plants. So uh, all of that is, I think, aligning incentives correctly in the marketplace. But there are rules that have to be followed. And there are regulators that still have authority, both at the federal level and the state level, at the Public Utility Commission. And there's something called PJM, which we haven't really mentioned. The grid, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's the grid operator. And they have tons of rules, which do get enforced. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take another phone call from Harry in Harrisburg. Harry, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, Thank go you. Ahead. Yes, um, as, as John knows, when, when the Competition Act was passed 20 years ago, one of its goals was um, based on the recognition that low-income customers um, may um, need specific protections in a competitive environment, and um, low-income programs were mandated um, by these companies. However, um, unfortunately, um, there have been no regulations passed in these 20 years um, discussing how low-income customers can um, compete or be protected in the um, regulated environment. So um, whereas in two of the service territories, Pico and Duquesne, um, these customer assistance program customers um, do not pay more than the default or price-to-compare rate, in PPL and First Energy companies, they are um, permitted to shop and permitted to um, engage in contracts that may be detrimental economically and, and where they have no elasticity of budget. And experience has shown that those low-income customers who have been shopping um, beyond just the effect on all residential customers who are doing better on default, these customers have, in fact, been doing significantly poorer and, in fact, are in jeopardizing their potential for continued service and mm. cap discount hey, rate. Harry, um, I wanted to bring that up anyway. Thank you very much for your, for your call. I have heard this criticism that low-income Pennsylvanians have not benefited from this as much and, you know, that there actually have been some that, uh, uh, you know, have actually had to pay a little bit more. 
So uh, I, I, I want to turn this over to Christina in just a moment because we actually had a section in the report looking at uh, the universal service programs, which are the customer assistance program for low-income families as well as the low-income usage reduction program. Uh, at the time of uh, the act passing and the, its implementation, uh, when I was on the commission, we ordered m massive increases in the budgets for the customer assistance program and the low-income usage reduction program. That was 20 years ago. When I say massive, we increased them by two, three, four times the budgets. Um, the challenges of serving a low-income customer are real. Um, there are v many very good people uh, living uh, below the poverty level who simply don't have enough money to pay a full, uh, the full electric bill, almost no matter how, what size it is. Uh, there are some very difficult circumstances that many families face. So I don't want to just sugarcoat this, uh, but the state, uh, and as part, of the, uh, as part of the Restructuring Act or the Competition Act, uh, insisted on major increases in customer service budgets uh, that utilities provide for low-income customers. And I think Christina can add a little more detail. Yeah, Christina, what about that? Yeah. So we looked at LIAR funding, which is low-income uh, energy assistance, as well as a customer assistance program or CAP program funding. Um, the restructuring orders required funding increases between 1999 and 2000, pretty significant increases. And we found that in MedEd, Penelec, PenPower, PPL, and West PenPower, that program funding over time has basically kept up with the rate of inflation uh, for the LIAR programs. But... Uh, for Duquesne Light and Pico, the program funding has not kept pace uh, with inflation, and that's that's interesting just because of kind of the demographics, you know, being more of an urban setting. Yeah, Pico probably would have more low-income customers than the other utilities. That's that's uh, presumably yes. Um, we found that the cap funding increases have kept pace with inflation overall, but I, I also want to point out something that John alluded to earlier, and that is the benefits that customers, all customers, low-income, residential, have um, experienced just from the, the, the choice act, both on the wholesale and the retail side. Again, taking utility from, or taking your service from the default utility, which is a choice, um, we, we compare those default utility rates in 2016 to the, um, the regulated rates from 1996 that we adjusted for inflation to make them more comparable to 2016 levels. And what we found is for every uh, utility territory except West Penn Power, customers who stayed on default service would have received about, would have received a savings. Statewide, that savings was calculated to be about $818 million um, for 2016. So again, you know, there may, while there may be some questions about the benefits or harms to low-income communities from shopping, uh, what we found is the Competition Act through wholesale competition and retail choice, meaning this kind of what I would say like a reformed default service product has provided benefits. Can I just provide three quick numbers? I know numbers can make your eyes glaze over. If my eyes glaze over, John, <laughs> I'll tell you, go ahead. So in the PPL service territory, uh, power prices uh, are 20% below where they were to, uh, in 1996 uh, for residential customers. They're, they're, for commercial customers, you know, the McDonald's and the barbershop, they're 24% lower. 
That's right here in our service territory. In the PICO service territory, they are 40% lower for residential customers and 55% lower for commercial customers. For the Pittsburgh and Allegheny County area, uh, they are 41% lower for residential customers and 56% lower for commercial customers. I mean, once in a while, the government gets something right. <laughs> and they got this pretty well right. Now, now those, those are impressive, I will admit. But getting back to the low-income customers, why aren't low-income customers benefiting as much? Well, well they, they are benefiting uh, as much as anyone else if they can fully pay that default bill because the default bill is uh, lower. And in the case of PICO, it's 40% lower. I started my career as a legal service attorney in the city of Philadelphia, and I saw so many people who worked as school crossing guards or, or low-wage workers uh, and couldn't pay their utility bill. It's, it's heartbreaking, and they were losing their service. Those folks are paying, if they can pay their bill now, considerably lower bill. In addition, they have these new programs. They didn't exist, uh, at least when I started my career, uh, the Customer Assistance Program and the Low-Income Usage Reduction Program. Uh, but uh, Harry is right. Not everything is perfect uh, uh, for, for any customer. And the challenges of, of serving somebody who's living at 50% of the poverty line. You know, there are 200,000 people in the city of Philadelphia living at not at 100% of the poverty line, at 50% uh, of the poverty line. And many of those are children. It breaks my heart to, uh, to you know, just to deal with that. Uh, so the challenges that we all have, whether you're a utility or a competitive supplier or the Public Utility Commission, dealing with that human tragedy, and it is a tragedy, um, are very real. Uh, I personally think everybody's working hard at it. Um, and I think in Pennsylvania we have more uh, services and lower prices uh, that certainly benefit low-income customers. Uh, again, it doesn't make electricity free. Uh, and until electricity is free and with zero pollution, we haven't reached the Garden of Eden. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're talking about 20 years of electric choice here in Pennsylvania. We have a few minutes left. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Let's take a phone call from John in Lewisbury. John, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, John. Uh, I wanted to talk about my mother's uh, situation with Pennsylvania Gas and Electric. She's 90 years old and lives in Carlisle, and I go to visit her once a week, and I was there on a Monday when uh, Pennsylvania Gas and Electric called, and between her and I, we thought it was good to uh, go on with Pennsylvania Gas and Electric. Well, she's also on the budget plan, so we didn't see – she didn't read – she doesn't know how to read her bill, but you know the bill stayed the same. And when I saw a uh, editorial comment in the Patriot that uh, Pennsylvania Gas and Electric prices were going through the roof, I went over and looked at her bill. And until we got it uh, taken care of, she ended up uh, owing something like twelve hundred dollars, which then uh, I called the the uh, uh, the Pennsylvania Gas. Uh, the uh, Pennsylvania Commission, and they uh, got it lowered by $400. But uh, she was one of those people who fell through the cracks. And admittedly, uh, I was part of it. But uh, uh, as the one comment said, uh, we we need to uh, not uh, 
we have to be very careful what we're doing and, and how we uh, how we get that. Uh, Thank you very much for oh, your call. I've, that's uh, almost certainly a, a variable rate uh, product, um, and it, those products uh, did allow prices uh, to increase uh, uh, by very large numbers at least every month. Uh, and during the so-called polar vortex, when power prices went through the roof, if, if you were on a variable rate product, uh, you were going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. We have a few minutes left, and there are a couple other issues I wanted to touch on. Uh, this was, I have to say that, uh, and Christina in the report, I saw this, uh, that this is probably something that a lot of people in Pennsylvania don't realize, but that since 1996... Now, a lot of this has to do with not uh, using coal-generated plants as much. 21% less carbon dioxide, 70% less nitrogen oxides, and 81% less sulfur dioxide as a result of, as I said, not uh, relying on coal as much. I mean, that's impressive. Yes, those numbers were for PJM as a whole, which, again, is the regional electricity grid that serves Pennsylvania and 12 other states. In Pennsylvania, the environmental emission reductions between 2005 and 2014 were similarly impressive, a 21% reduction in carbon dioxide, 31% reduction in nitrogen oxides, and 74% reduction in sulfur dioxide. And those reductions, again, are um, associated with moving away from coal and uh, towards uh, a mix of energy that has more uh, natural gas and renewable energy. John, we have an email here from another Christina. I'm assuming it's another Christina. I don't think this Christina is emailing us, but wants to know how does a consumer gauge where utility rates will go over the course of the next year or so in order to determine if it's a good time to lock in a two- or three-year contract? Well, truthfully, nobody can give the the uh, that caller emailer uh, a hundred percent accurate answer. Um, most people in the power business would tell you today that power prices are are almost at historically low points. It's hard for me to understand how they could go much lower. Uh, so I don't mind recommending to customers uh, to uh, get a, a longer-term contract. Now is a good time to get a longer-term contract. If I you can lock in the rate. Yes, and you can. Uh, in mo most parts of the Commonwealth, if you go to PAPowerSwitch.com, you will pr be able to see uh, at least a one-year contract, in many cases a two-year contract. I would encourage often the two-year contract. Uh, again, you've got to educate yourself, but now is a good time to go longer on the, on a contract rather than shorter because power prices are so low uh, now, and there is almost only one place for them to go, and it is up. Mm -hmm. Hey, Christina, and we only have about a minute or so left. Um, nuclear, I, I, some one of our callers earlier couldn't stay on the line, was talking about Three Mile Island not being able to sell uh, their power here the last uh, couple uh, periods when you know there, there have been bids on, on power. Uh, where does nuclear fit into our future? Yeah, that's a, that's a question that a lot of states are dealing with, a lot of states that have competitive power markets. As I've said, the low price of natural gas is reducing kind of the bucket of compensation that's available for all generators in the market, and that is um, really hurting some coal and nuclear generators. And there are discussions going on in several states like New York, Illinois, for example, about um, – you know, how to, whether and how to keep nuclear power online through this, um, in this low natural gas price environment, I, low electricity price environment. simply want to say Three Mile Island can sell their power 
they they any 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 kilowatt hour they produce they get uh, they that plant gets uh, compensated for what they did not win was what something called the capacity auction so they did not get an additional revenue stream from the capacity market. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, we only have about uh, 20 seconds left. What's the future look like? I know it's hard to describe the future in 20 seconds. but Well, I, I think generally it looks, ver- it looks very bright. Uh, we have a, be- a cleaner, more efficient power fleet. Um, the risks are with the investors, not with the, not with the uh, customers. Uh, I think renewable energy is going to grow rapidly. I encourage people to shop for renewable energy. I think it's a great product, and it's available now. Mm-hmm. John Hanger is the former uh, Secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection and Public Utility Commissioner. Uh, Christine, Christina Simeone is Director of Policy and External Affairs at the Climate Center. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program is our annual program before the holidays, talking about books to give for holiday gifts. That's coming up on tomorrow's show.